0: done for us not that we've done anything for you but you show mercy to us lord and we thank you for that and we cry out to you holy 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 we pray that you'd be with us this morning as we worship you amen all right can you hear me all right hopefully that's all the technical difficulties we have this morning um do have one other slight difficulty, I guess. Um, I'm going to be preaching, it says in the bulletin 11 through 24, but I'm only going to be doing 11 through 14. Um, and if I start to go along, you'll probably be glad of that. Um, but anyways, uh, we've been in Romans here all year, as many of you know. And for those of you who don't, who don't know, that's where we're going to be. And my name is Eric uh, Pendleberry, and I'm obviously preaching here this morning. Many of you know me, but some of you don't. Uh, So I just want to go ahead and get into it here. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Romans 11, 11 through 14, and then we can get started. Paul says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles... How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you that salvation has come to us. Gentiles, as it were, we are gratefully amazed at your ways. You bring salvation to sinners you bring light out of darkness, and the sins of men freely committed are used to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And not only that, but that same salvation is available to those who have rejected you in the past. And we praise you for this amazing grace. Amen. Okay, so while I was preparing for this sermon, I was struggling a little bit with an illustration, and I kind of wanted to open up with one, and I, I finally came up with one here one day when my wife and I were out for a walk so here's my illustration (laughs) our kids they're in 4-H and a couple of years ago our son Calvin he did a market goat project now for those of you who aren't familiar with with 4-H projects a market project is the type where typically the animal does not come home with you that is he is sold and sent to market so I say typically Because at the end of the fair that year, our market project, known as Ricky the Goat, well, he came home with us, and he's been there ever since. So now, we have a 150-pound goat living year-round in a pen that was intended to be just used for the summer. Now, his place is nice. He has a nice little house there, and he has a little bit of room to roam. So don't call the Humane Society on me. He's okay. Also, he gets opportunities to roam around the yard, free-range, especially when my wife is out working in the yard, and it is kind of amusing to watch this goat just follow Steph around the yard like a little puppy, except that, well, he tries to eat everything. Uh, So I thought it would be nice to fence in another area for him to graze so he doesn't eat all our flowers, our mail, sometimes paychecks, different things. Uh, So this summer, the boys, they did another 4-H project, but it, it was turkeys this year. So I had extra motivation to finally fence in that area and we could use it for the turkeys and then the goat. Alright, so we, so we fenced it in the area and this is a nice large shaded area um, in the backyard it's primarily for the goat, it's for his good. So there's more room, nice grass, low hanging branches with leaves to eat, which he loves to eat leaves for some reason. Um, and the boys and I built this pen, we built the same way we built the old one and the, the old one now, it's pretty much out of grass, and it's about a quarter of the size of the new. So fast forward after the fair, the turkeys are gone. They did not come home, thankfully. Uh, so now the pasture, it's all Ricky's. It's all for him. So I take him down, and we, we put him in, and I'm thinking just how happy he's going to be and just how generous I am for providing this little uh, paradise for our goat But much to my surprise, Ricky destroyed the gate, which we fixed. Then he pushed through the cattle panel fencing, broke the welds and forced his way through. So we fixed that. Then he broke another weld, stuck his head through, uprooted the metal fence post and crawled underneath. So we put him back in his old pen and he's just fine. No attempt to escape. He has clearly rejected what we have intended for him to enjoy. But, in light of this, we now have an empty pasture. So, up until this point of my little illustration here, this is, this is all nonfiction. This has all happened. Now, some of this has worked itself out very recently, but anyways. So, the rest of, of what I'm going to say here is, strict, it's hypothetical, strictly hypothetical. So, I have no intentions of doing this. I say this mainly, so my wife hears this. Um, uh, Okay, so let's just say, rather than, than having an empty pasture, I decide that we should get a few other goats to enjoy it. So let's call them Billy and Nanny, and so we have these goats. Uh, so let, we're going to have them, they're going to be able to enjoy what Ricky rejected. And, and they do, because we put them in there, and I mean, it's a great spot. Uh, so, of course, they love it. And after a while, I, I would suspect that Ricky would become a little curious, if not even envious, of seeing them enjoying this little veritable goat heaven that we've created. And then perhaps, maybe then, he would realize what he's missing out on. And I could just lead him right back into it, what was initially meant for him. And he would live, live happily ever after with his new friends. Now, if Ricky had not refused to stay in his new pasture, these other goats would have never got to enjoy it themselves. However, because of Ricky's transgression, Billy and Nanny have received a great blessing. And in turn, because of their blessing, Ricky can now share in it as well. So, I hope this illustration has kind of shown what this, what this passage is about here. Paul's main idea is that on believing Israel has fallen, they've rejected the gospel, however, they've not necessarily fallen forever, and their sin has resulted in salvation coming to all kinds of people, the Gentiles. Furthermore, the Gentile salvation, as great as that is, it has another purpose as well, and that is to bring the unbelieving Jews to faith in Christ. Um, very similar to my, my illustration, I hope. Um, now, this is a very interesting passage in that it, it seems to be saying that God has not given up on ethnic Israel. That's fair enough in considering the fact that Israel is once again a country. After all they've been through, seems to me to be good evidence that God does have a special place for them. But this passage is also teaching us something about how God works, how He works throughout history. And it also tells us that God is able to take the sinful acts of His creatures and do great things with them, which in turn gives us an insight into why God allows evil. So, this morning's text it's basically centering around Israel's sin and what God is going to accomplish with it. And it's also going to demonstrate that the Word of God does not fail. And showcase God's ability to bring good out of evil. So we're about halfway through chapter 11 here, and it started out with the question: Did God reject His people? And Paul, in his typical fashion, says, by no means. For example, he himself is a Jew, and so in order to clarify a little bit, Paul he divides his countrymen into two categories: you have one, the remnant chosen by grace, and the other, the hardened who have stumbled and fallen. The latter, the fallen, are the ones who are in view in this this passage here. But before I talk more about that, though, I want to back up just a little bit to Romans 9, 6. And it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So this is a very important verse as we go through chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we need to keep it in mind. One of Paul's main points here is that all that is happening right now such as the Gentiles entering the the kingdom at a rapid pace. All this is according to the plan of God. You see, God's word never fails. It is never an error. Our interpretations of it can be. And that's one thing Paul is correcting here. The false interpretations that assumed ethnicity and law-keeping were the way to a right standing before God. Furthermore, in this, this section here, Paul is pointing out all these Old Testament prophecies, and saying basically, if the Israelites hadn't stumbled, then the word of God would have failed. So, we get to our section, which focuses on those Israelites who have stumbled, and Paul asks, did they stumble in order to fall? In other words, did God just blind their eyes to watch them fall? And that brings us right to our text here. So I'll read verse 11 real quick. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Well, that pretty much answers that question. Their stumbling, it will be used for good. What was that stumbling? What was that transgression or trespass? Unbelief. So if we read down in chapter 11, Paul explains that some Israelites were broken off because of their unbelief. Additionally, earlier in Romans 9, 30-32, Paul explains that Israel pursued the wrong path of righteousness. That is, they pursued righteousness by works of the law rather than the righteousness that is by faith. Then in chapter 10, Paul shows the Old Testament testified to this righteousness that is by faith and how it was very near, very near all along. And he further, he quotes from the Old Testament showing that everything that has happened to them they were actually warned about beforehand. And then we get to the book of Acts. You know, we, we can read about these specific incidences um, of their own belief. And specifically in this passage, it is their rejection of the gospel message. Um, but before we get into those, I want to go back to the Old Testament here, to the story of Elijah and the widow in 1 Kings 17, and just see how God has dealt with Israel and their sinfulness in the past. To give us an insight into how he w- it continues to work with them okay so this story here um, in 1st Kings 17 when we, get, we start coming towards the, the story about the widow we see uh, the chapters preceding are about the line of kings that are leading up to the current king Ahab so when we look at the king before Ahab it's King Omri he is described as a king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord And he sinned more than all those before him. So we can see things are getting worse and worse. And then finally we get to Ahab. And here's what the text says about him. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Specifically, he set up an altar for Baal. He is worshiping and encouraging the worship of false gods, especially Baal. So it's in this context that the prophet Elijah is sent to King Ahab to declare there will be a drought. There's going to be no rain, no dew for years. Why a drought? Why is he bringing the judgment of a drought upon these people? Well, if we remember, one of the chief sins is of Ahab is his worship of Baal, who just happens to be, Baal that is, he is the god of fertility, and also, get this, he is the lord of the rain clouds. So the one true god, he does not, you know, beat around the bush here, he's basically saying... Uh, Baal, I'm coming for you. So, of course, of course, a drought, it's going to affect everybody, and not just, not just Ahab and not just the Israelites and those worshiping false gods, but everybody. Um, and Elijah himself, he's taken care of by God initially, but eventually a source of water's dried up, and he's standing in need. And so that, that's where we stand here with the story, and I'm just going to start reading in uh, chapter 17, verse 8 here and just read the story real quick. Says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there Now Note, this is, this is not Israel And this is also the region where the Baal worship originated Just, just keep that in mind with, with who God works with here I have directed a widow there to supply you with food So he went to Zarephath And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar So I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Eliza said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me, from what you have, and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. Judgment comes upon the land. They refuse to repent in spite of the drought, and so God's prophet Elijah, who has the word of the Lord, is sent to the Gentile woman. She is facing death, but because she believes and obeys, she is saved, and not only her, but Elijah as well. So accordingly here, we have an Israelite, Elijah, being saved, and a Gentile, the widow, being saved from the drought, which is and represents the judgment or the wrath of God upon an idolatrous people so you can see the parallel here with where we are in Romans some Jews have been saved some Gentiles but much of Israel ethnic Israel stands in need of salvation just as most of Israel in the story still needs salvation from the drought then we move on in the story in Kings get to chapter 18 we have the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal which is basically just this is God versus Baal so they set up altars with sacrifices, and they're, they're set up one for God, one for Baal, and whichever deity responds from, with fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice will be declared the winner, and they will be the true God. So Baal is first, and despite the dancing, chanting, and cutting of themselves, Baal remains unresponsive to his worshipers. Now it's the Lord God's turn. First, Elijah has people dump water on the sacrifice to the Lord several times until it is saturated during a drought mind you the very thing the people are in need of is added to the sacrifice I'm not going to go into that but maybe just, just think about that this afternoon see what, see what that leads you to think about and come to conclusion on and also in case you didn't know water is somewhat fire resistant and then finally Elijah he prays to the Lord and the Lord God sends down fire from heaven that burns up not only the sacrifice but the stones of the altar so the Lord is victorious in an awesome faction, thus the people fall prostrate, prostrate on the ground they cry out, the Lord is God, in short they repent and they turn to the Lord and then what happens next it rains the drought is over and all Israel is saved so we can see Israel transgresses Gentile is saved Israel is saved kind of clarify a little more these principles are working here god's just judgment upon sin is meant to bring repentance there's salvation in the midst of the judgment in this case to the gentile widow who also plays a role in the sustaining of elijah who has the word of god which in turn leads to the future salvation of israel who is currently under god's wrath so we have this pattern here that displays how god does things and it continues into the new testament so when we get there, when we get to the New Testament, we see in Israel's transgressions once again leading to salvation for the Gentiles. And as Paul tells us, the salvation of themselves, ultimately. Now there are two specific transgressions I want to talk about. First is the rejecting and killing of Christ, and second is the rejection of the gospel. And both of these are described for us in the book of Acts, and I want to look at the uh, former first here. So in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, it says... This is Peter's uh, preaching here on the day of Pentecost. It says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. And then we go to Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So, I mean, this this is really the ultimate story of salvation through judgment. So the judgment that fell on Christ, brought about in part by the Israelites, it leads to the way of salvation for all. It's all who believe and it's not just salvation from a drought or slavery as good as that is but it's salvation from the wrath of God and from the power of sin and it's salvation to eternal life with the triune God so this pattern that we talked about and I gave up the Elijah story as an example it's a foreshadowing or a pointing toward the death and resurrection of Jesus which is the central event of the Bible So these Old Testament stories, they're just, it's a pattern that God is using that that finds its fulfillment in Christ's life, his death and his resurrection. But there's a couple things that stand out from these Acts passages. First, Jesus' death on the cross was part of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Second, the Israelites acted in ignorance, although it was foretold through the prophets whose writings they should have been familiar with. It is also clear that the Israelites have committed a grave sin by killing the Messiah and the command to repent, it confirms that. So they could have and should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't. And if they would have and not killed him, then the word of God would have failed. So we see here that God is sovereign over without coercing the Israelites' failure and transgression. It was their transgression... Just as the Israelites' sin of Baal worship in Elijah's day was their transgression, our transgressions are our transgressions, and even Ricky the goat's transgression was his transgression. How can that be, though? I mean, it was God's plan that these wicked men would sin. And if they would not have sinned, then the word of God would have failed. So it seems that in order to uphold his plan, God had to make them sin. Now that, that might be true for a human being you know to ensure that his plan would be accomplished, but that, that's not the case for an all-powerful and all-knowing God. God he not only determines what happens but how it happens. So God can just as infallibly accomplish his plan through voluntary actions as he can through necessary actions. He is sovereign over sin, but he's not the cause of it as all good God can't cause sin. It comes about due to man's defect or failure. So, sins are chosen actions. Fallen human beings, though prone to and bent towards sin, they don't have to sin. And they are therefore responsible. So, I'm going to try and just give a little bit more insight into this idea here and give an example of this, of uh, necessary and voluntary actions. So, in order to be alive, I must have a heartbeat it is necessary for me to be alive now I may walk if I'm alive but I don't have to walk to be alive it's voluntary so does God know right now if my heart will be beating tomorrow yeah I think so (laughs) But does God know right now if I will be walking tomorrow? Yeah, he does. So he knows things that must be, that is necessary, like my heartbeat. He knows those, and he knows things that may be, like my voluntary decision to walk. So he knows what will be, and whether they are necessary or voluntary makes no difference to God. Doesn't matter. He knows everything. He knows, both, he knows things in both ways infallibly. That is without fail. And the main reason is, is because God to him it is always right now. Eternally now. He sees all time at once. Everything. There's no before and after in God's knowledge. It's knowledge. Simply. All of it. Now, to carry forward this idea here, we can see that God can know things that happen in necessary ways and things that happen in voluntary ways. But can he determine those, or is he causing those in some way or sovereign over them? Um, Let's just ask the question, could, could my heart beat apart from God in some way causing it? No. God works concurrently with how he created the heart to cause it to beat. God has the power of life and death. But, now, could I walk apart from God in some way causing me to walk? Well, my heart's not beating. I'm not going to be walking. So, no. Obviously, I depend on my heart beating in order to walk. So, I must, therefore, in some way attribute my walking to God. Now, how often do we think about our heart beating or decide to beat our heart? We're like... Okay, I'm going to beat it now and then now. and then, No, we don't, we don't do that. But how often do we decide or choose to go for a walk? Sometimes we just walk when we don't think about it, but we choose to walk. Um, if I walk, I choose to walk, and I am in a very real sense responsible for my walking, obviously. And I think that the difference between these two things, they just show... That They're very different things. Necessary and voluntary things are very different. But God is sovereign over both. So when these evil men do these evil things, they're doing it voluntarily. But it's not out of God's control. He's still sovereign, but they're responsible, just as I'm responsible for when I walk. So in short, when it comes to to God, he can know for sure what a maybe be will be and God can determine a maybe just as easily as a must be so sin and evil which arise from maybes are allowed only because this is the only reason because God as all-powerful can infallibly that is without a doubt bring a greater good from it and the cross it is it's the most magnificent example of this God determined that it would happen, wicked men were responsible so he uses this greatest act of evil ever to bring about the greatest good So God can bring salvation through judgment he can bring good from evil he can take a transgression and use it to lead to salvation and this is all the work of the only wise God to whom belongs all the glory But before I look at the other transgression of Israel and which is the primary one in view in this passage I want to take a step back real quick I'm just going to read through the passage again starting in verse 11 So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles how much more will their full inclusion bring? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. Okay, so if you remember back at the beginning, or if you noticed this, the first time I read this passage, it was from the NIV, and it uses the word envious, where the ESV uses jealous. So, and as you know, jealousy, can it it can actually be a good thing. So when God describes himself as a jealous God in the Ten Commandments, his jealousy is such that he wants to protect and keep his people because he desires them to have the good, which is himself. So jealousy, it can be protective over what belongs to you. Envy, on the other hand, is not protective because envy involves lacking something, not protecting anything. God, he obviously does not lack anything, so consequently he's never described as envious. Envy, it's desiring something that someone else has that you don't. And jealousy, it is used this way sometimes, and there's different ways to be jealous or, or envious. You know, you can be jealous because someone has a car and you don't, or that their car is just simply nicer than yours. But, you know, for our purposes here, jealousy, envy, it, it, it starts out as wanting what someone else has. Which, which could lead to a situation like Ricky's Where he saw how happy the other goats were you know, And he decided to swallow his pride And he's going to join them Or envy When it's carried through as one of the worst sins It leads one to magnify his pride And either take the good thing That he doesn't have Or in some way try to destroy it So for example If Ricky's pride would have got the best of him He would have attacked poor little Billy and Nanny And it would have been a lot different story Um, so back to the passage here the transgression that Paul has specifically in mind is Israel's rejection of the gospel so in Acts chapter 13 we have an account of this just playing out and I want you to pay attention here which is usually a good idea anyway but um, (laughs) I just want us to pay attention and see what direction the Jews jealousy or envy leads you know just see where see what they do with it Alright, here. so we get, we got Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching in a Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, and Paul stands up and he basically tells the whole story of the Israelite people, culminating in the resurrection of Jesus, through whom the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. So starting in verse 38 here, it says, uh, this is Paul, it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Just look at this warning here. Paul says, take care that this does not happen to you. It could, but it doesn't have to. Don't be a scoffer. Some will be, some may, but they don't have to. Don't let it be you, though. Instead, believe what the Lord says. So i go back to the text here, picking up verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That last line strikes me as somewhat odd. It says they shook off their feet as a warning to them and then says they're filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's a little bit strange, I think, but I'm hoping by the time I'm done here, that may make a little more sense to you. I'm not going to really explain it. I'm going to leave that to you. (laughs) Um, But this incident that's recorded here in chapter 13, it's basically repeated over and over and over throughout the book of Acts. We have similar things happening in chapter 14, 17, 18, 19, and eventually the final time at Rome in chapter 28. So, when Paul declares here that they are now turning to the Gentiles, it does not mean that he's doing so completely. It means that in this area, or in this city, he's now going to turn to the Gentiles. So, this, this pattern here that Paul had mentioned earlier in Romans, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, it's, it's confirmed in the historical book of Acts. Um, furthermore, we have exactly what Paul is writing about in our passage, and this is it's just happening in real time. So the gospel's preached, some Jews and some Gentiles believe, then the Jews largely reject the gospel and become jealous. And when we read these accounts in Acts, it seems that their jealousy is only bad. It's only bad jealousy or envy, and it's resulting in riots, persecution, anger, and abusive behavior towards Paul. For example, as we just read, Acts 13:45, it says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Very strong language. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. So, it kind of seems like Paul's only being the first half of this goal. Remember, he, he wants their jealousy to lead to their salvation. Well, he's making them jealous, and he's making them angry, but they're not being saved. So on the contrary, they're, they're getting really mad. Um, and if you look back in Acts, the Jews that are saved, they're just saved alongside the Gentiles who believe before the rest of the, Gent- the, rest of the Jews become jealous and angry. So maybe Paul should just quietly preach the gospel, you know, just, and then just sneak out of the city so he could avoid all this trouble, And especially since their jealousy is not really resulting in their salvation. But our text this morning says Paul magnifies his ministry to make the Jews jealous. what's going on here? It it seems like what's happening is not matching what Paul is saying. Their jealousy is not resulting in salvation. But in spite of this, he does the same thing, magnifying it. He does it over and over again. And I mean, there's five accounts in Acts. It's the same. Is Paul losing it here? Is the word of God that Paul is speaking here in Romans, is it failing? By no means, as Paul would say. First, He says that he wants to provoke the Jews to jealousy to somehow save them. It's not that he expects them all to be saved as soon as they become jealous. And second, in our passage, is the idea that if Israel's rejection leads to riches for the world, how much more will their inclusion mean? So Paul both wants and expects expects much of Israel to be saved. However, he does not have to see it happen. But he knows it all will happen according to the word of God. And he knows it's playing out exactly how God has said. And this is what Paul wants the angry, jealous Jews to see that the Word of God, which includes what he's saying right here, has not failed. Remember, nine, six, Romans 9 6. The Word of God has not failed. This is Paul's primary concern. And until the Jews see this, they can't be saved. What they need to understand is that the Word of God does not fail, and it will not. He wants the jealous, angry Jews to see that their jealousy is actually proof of this, and thus bring them to repentance. So what am I talking about here? Well, before I answer that question, I want us to think about this just just for ourselves for a minute here. Do we do we believe the word of God? Do we believe that it can fail or it's wrong sometimes? Now, unfortunately, there are some Christians that would say that the Bible can err or it can fail. But, of course, Orthodox Christians have always maintained the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, at least with their lips. And then there is what can be, what I think is, one of the most dangerous approaches to the Bible. There are a few of them, but. This approach assumes that the word of God, it's always talking about somebody else. Surely not us. So now, I I know, in order to understand the scripture, we need to realize the entire Bible is written for us, not necessarily directly to us. So for example, understanding who Paul is writing a letter to and what problems he is addressing, it helps us to understand the meaning of the text. But I am certain that what is being said or taught in the Scripture has either direct or indirect implications for ourselves. So, for example, when we read in Romans one twenty-one, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Or in Romans 1.29-32, they become filled with envy With every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips and slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know that God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they approve of those who practice them. Now, when we read through there, we see these words, gossip, insolent, arrogant, boastful, envious, strife, deceit. Do we see ourselves described here? Or is it just others? That's surely not us. No, 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 no. What about anybody, any non-believers here? What about you? Um, Do you see any of your characteristics here? Or is God wrong? I mean, a, a few chapters later, God says that all of have fallen short. So do you see the truth in God's word? Does it, does it cut to the heart? Does it cause you to fall before him in, in fear? Or do you pridefully say, nah, no God, you're wrong. Your word has failed. You see, God encounters us with the truth. And it's only when you see and accept the truth, which is God's word, that you can be set free. You have to believe what is true. Now, this sounds so simple, but that's exactly what Paul wants his fellow Jews to do. That's it. He wants them to believe the truth of the word of God. And in this case, it's a very specific word of God that was spoken through Moses over 1,000 years before Paul's day that explains the Israelites' jealous and angry reaction to Paul's message a word that was spoken not just for, but to the Jewish people, the very people of Paul's day. What, what word was that? It's the word that Paul has already mentioned a few paragraphs ago in Romans 10. Quoting from Deuteronomy thirty two twenty one. God says, <clears throat> I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's you. Paul is essentially saying to his fellow Jews, God is talking about you. You are fulfilling the word of God. You're angry and jealous of the Gentiles, who the Jews largely considered foolish, and probably rightfully so. They're exactly the type of people God said he would make them jealous of exactly the type of thing that the one who meditates on the book of the law day and night, quoting from Joshua 1.8, should come to see and drive them to repentance, resulting in salvation. He wants them to see that they are the very people that Moses wrote about. He wants the light bulb to come on, the light to shine and exposes who they are. The Bible is talking about them. It's not always about somebody else. The word of God does not fail. And I'm reminded here of Jesus' words to the Pharisees. They thought, you know, they could never do anything against God. And Jesus says in Matthew 23:29 through 32, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, uh, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murder the prophets. Go ahead then, and complete what your ancestors started. So here we have the very people who said they wouldn't have killed the prophets. They end up killing not only a prophet, but the prophet, the king, the priest, the Messiah, the son of God. And after they do, Peter, in Acts chapter two, tells them this. He says, that was, that was you. And they're cut to the heart. And they repent, many of them. Now, Paul here, in a similar way, is trying to get the Jews he interacts with to see who they are. They are the jealous and angry people that Moses prophesied about so long ago. He's saying, look, this is you. God has told you about it beforehand. And you know his word doesn't fail. And you know he doesn't lie. Accept the truth. Reject, reject your self-righteous pride and be cut to the heart so that you can repent and times of refreshing may come. Nate, you, you can come on up. <clears throat> so the word of God, it, it does not fail, even when his people do. In fact, he tells them in advance that they will to warn those who he's foreknown, to show that he is sovereign, and to convict those who fail and fall in order to bring them to repentance. But that is only possible if they, and if you, believe. God wants his people to see that he's always right. Now now think about this. God is so gracious and good that he tells them advance the sins that they will commit, and if they will just believe what he says and accept the truth of it, see they have sinned as God knew they would, and believe he's always had a plan to save them from their sin, then they'll be saved. They need to see what we all need to see, that we are the very sinners the Bible talks about. And in order to be forgiven, we must turn to the Lord, and he will provide. Those that do are his people, and those that don't remain under his wrath. His righteous wrath. So, quickly here, what, what, what all have we seen this morning? We've seen that God is, because God is sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, that he both can and will bring good out of evil. In fact, that's the only reason he allows evil. Furthermore, we have his word, which, as we have seen this morning, it does not fail. And it provides us insight into how God operates. We will do well to pay attention to his word to learn the word, remember the word, love the word, and believe the word, no matter what it says. Believe it. Also, Paul magnified his ministry, and this provoked the Israelites to jealousy, as God said. And what was Paul's ministry? The gospel. Which, as we should remember from earlier in Romans, is the power of God unto salvation. Now remember Elijah's story? The people didn't repent until... Basically, God had won the contest. He had, he had destroyed the power that Baal had over them. The false god of Baal, just like the false ideas that we have, need to be destroyed with the truth. And when God does that, then we can be free to believe. Now, it's the power of God into salvation, not the power of man. In fact, that's what we must believe. We must believe that it is he who saves us. And this angers people. It angers people who are thinking that their righteous deeds are making them right with God and they're better than these people and all these things. Made them mad. Still makes people mad. But we must keep preaching it because it's true. Now, it may have made some people in this room even angry in the past, but at some point it it became the sweetest truth. Now, others may be on the same journey as well. But maybe it doesn't make you angry at all, and maybe it has no effect on you. You just blow it off, whatever, the gospel, what is this? And maybe it's because you don't believe it's true, and that's good. You shouldn't believe it if you don't, you shouldn't believe anything if you don't think it's true. But I would encourage you to do some research, and you can talk with me if you'd like, but there's a wealth of evidence and support of the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, the fact is, he's the most influ- influential person in history. Why? Well, maybe he was who he said he was and who the other biblical writers said he was. And, and if that's true, it seems to fit with what we all we all almost have an intuitive knowledge of and that is this. We all know we have wronged God. We all know that deep down. And therefore, the fact is that we all stand in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ who came, lived the perfect life, yet died a criminal's death to pay for our sins. But he was raised to life on the third day so that all who believe and trust in him and what he has done can be freed from the penalty that their sin has earned, the slavery that their sin has caused, and they can now begin a new life lived in the glorious light of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. You are God and there is no other. You know the end from the beginning and you ask us to believe this wonderful truth and you show us this truth in your word and we thank you for that. We praise you for that and we praise you for simply who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.